Hello, this is Aaron Trinidad, ENT Lead, and this podcast is on the facial nerve. So, the facial nerve is a fascinating nerve and is the most feared and revered by ENT surgeons due to the disfigurement that it can cause when things go wrong, either from disease or from surgical injury during procedures of the ear or of the head and neck. Of all cranial nerves, it is definitely the most complicated and a careful study of it will reap many rewards, especially as it's a favorite in exams. Now the facial nerve, the seventh cranial nerve, is a mixed nerve, meaning that it has both motor and sensory components. In fact, the facial nerve's functions are so varied that they can be further subdivided into four main areas of action. These are the somatomotor, relating to muscle movement, the somatosensory, relating to sensation, the viscerosecretory, relating to glandular function, and the gustatory, relating to taste. The facial nerve is actually a bundle of nerves coming from different nuclei within the brain, each with different functions. But first, let's discuss the course of the facial nerve. So the facial nerve bends three times after leaving the brainstem. Each bend is known as a genu, that's G-E-N-U, which is from the Latin for knee. The three genua are the internal genu, the first genu, and the second genu. Shortly after leaving the brainstem, the efferent branches from the motor facial nucleus bend at the internal genome and enter the internal auditory canal, also known as the internal porous acousticus. And the reason why it's called acousticus is because remember that the eighth or the vestibulocochlear nerve also runs within the internal auditory canal. Here, the motor fibers are joined by the viscerosecretory fibers from the salivary nucleus. After traveling with the 8th cranial nerve through the internal auditory canal, the facial nerve exits and very quickly bends again at an angle of approximately 115 degrees at the first genome. Here there is a thickening of the facial nerve into a ganglion, which is a collection of neural bodies. And this ganglion is known as a geniculate ganglion. At the geniculate ganglion, some visceral sensory fibers are given off as the greater petrosal nerve and travel to supply the lacrimal glands in the eye and the mucus secreting glands of the nose. The nerve then carries on past the first genu and then enters and traverses the middle ear cavity. This part of the facial nerve is known as the tympanic segment. After crossing the middle ear cavity, it bends again at about 90 degrees at the second genu and enters the mastoid bone. This part of the facial nerve is known as a mastoid segment. Whilst within the mastoid bone, three things happen. First, some motor fibers are given off as the stapedius nerve, which go on to supply the stapedius muscle, which is responsible for the stiffening of the stapes bone in response to loud sounds a protective reflex known as the stapedial reflex. Second, the remainder of the visceral secretory fibers exit the middle ear 
and travel to the submandibular ganglion, which in turn supplies nerves to the submandibular and sublingual salivary glands. And thirdly, afferent gustatory or taste nerves from the anterior two-thirds of the tongue enter the middle ear as the corda tympani, which then carries taste sensation back up the facial nerve to the solitary tract nucleus within the brainstem. The visceral secretory nerve fibers traveling out towards the submandibular ganglion actually hitch a ride down along the incoming corda tympani. In fact, the afferent fibers of the corda tympani and the efferent visceral secretory nerve fibers form their own discrete bundle within the main bulk of the facial nerve known as a nervous intermedius. Finally, the facial nerve leaves the mastoid bone and exits the skull via the stylomastoid foramen. Here, the majority of the remainder of the motor fibers run through the parotid gland and split into five main branches to supply the muscles of the face. These branches are the temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal mandibular and cervical branches. Just before entering the parotid gland, a branch is also given off to supply the posterior belly of the digastric muscle. Remember the anterior belly of the digastric muscle is supplied by the mandibular branch of the trigeminal or fifth cranial nerve. So it's essentially a muscle with two nerve supply. The posterior half supplied by the facial nerve and the anterior half supplied by the trigeminal nerve. The final thing to happen at the stylomastoid foramen is that afferent sensory fibers from behind the ear forming the posterior auricular nerve carry sensation from the skin overlying the mastoid bone up through the facial nerve and to the precentral gyrus of the brain. So in summary, the facial nerve is made up of two efferent sets of nerves leaving the brain to the peripheries that is, the motor fibers to the muscles and the visceral secretory fibers to the lacrimal, nasal and salivary glands. And two afferent sets of nerves taking signals from the peripheries back to the brain. That is, the gustatory and the somatosensory nerves. Three nuclei are involved with the facial nerve. And these are the motor facial nucleus giving rise to the motor fibers the salivary nucleus giving rise to the visceral secretory fibers and the solitary tract nucleus receiving gustatory sensation from the corda tympani. The facial nerve has one ganglion, the geniculate ganglion, from which arises the greater petrosal nerve, carrying visceral secretory nerves to the lacrimal gland and the nose. Next, we'll talk about some clinical scenarios that can affect the facial nerve. So first, let's talk about facial palsy. Now, the course of the facial nerve we've discussed so far is the course of the lower motor neuron component of the facial nerve. This lower motor neuron component is in turn controlled by the upper motor neurons within the cortex of the brain and receives input from both the left and right sides through the facial nerve crossover synapses within the brain. So, a facial palsy 
that is a one-sided weakness of the face, happens when the motor component of the facial nerve is affected. If someone presents to you with a facial nerve palsy, the first thing to determine is whether it is an upper motor neuron problem in the cortex of the brain or a lower motor neuron problem from the lower part of the brain and the brainstem towards the peripheries. Upper motor neuron lesions of the motor facial nerve typically occur in patients with stroke. And typically, the side of facial weakness is on the opposite side to that of the stroke. Again, due to the higher facial nerve crossover synapses within the brain. The way to determine whether a facial nerve palsy is due to an upper motor neuron lesion or a lower motor neuron lesion is to look for forehead sparing. Simply put, both left and right sided upper motor neurons of the facial nerve control motor function to each side of the forehead and upper face by a signal sent through the lower motor neurons. So, for example, if the left upper motor neuron is affected during a stroke, upper motor neuron fibers from the right side continue to supply the right side of the forehead, thus sparing it from weakness. In a lower motor neuron lesion, the ipsilateral or same-sided lower motor neuron is affected anywhere from the level of the brainstem to the peripheries, thus causing the forehead to also be affected. Basically, messages from the upper motor neurons from neither the left nor the right sides in the cortex can get through to the forehead due to the lower motor neuron, the middleman, being impaired. So, if a patient has a left facial droop and aren't able to raise their eyebrows on the left side due to weakness of the left forehead muscles, you know that this is a left lower motor neuron problem and it's an issue somewhere along the left facial nerve between the brainstem and the peripheries. If, on the other hand, the patient is able to raise that left eyebrow, that is forehead sparing, then they need to be seen by a neurologist for suspected stroke. It can all be a bit confusing, and it might be worthwhile listening to that section again. But if it's too confusing to grasp, then just remember this. If the patient's face is weak on one side, then if they can't raise the forehead as well as the rest of the face, then it's a problem with the facial nerve somewhere between the brainstem and the peripheries, the so-called lower motor neuron palsy. One cause of facial palsy that ENT surgeons see is middle ear disease either acute or chronic otitis media. Middle ear disease can potentially affect the tympanic or mastoid portions of the facial nerve. In most of the normal population, the tympanic segment of the facial nerve is protected from the middle ear environment by being enclosed in a bony canal called the fallopian canal, not to be confused with the fallopian tubes of the female reproductive organs. And in about 10% of the population, the fallopian canal is absent. In these cases, we see that the facial nerve is dehiscent because it does not have a bony covering. So, in the presence of middle ear infection, the nerve is directly exposed to inflammation, which can affect its function. But not only people with dehiscent facial nerves are at risk of facial weakness. In the case of cholesteatoma, 
a destructive form of chronic otitis media. The disease process can actually destroy protective bone of the fallopian canal and affect the facial nerve directly. So, whenever a patient presents to an ENT surgeon with facial weakness, we always ask about ear infections and examine the ear for evidence of middle ear disease, such as an eardrum perforation or a cholesteatoma. Treating the underlying infective cause can often rescue the facial nerve's function if done in time. Of course, trauma to the temporal bone itself can fracture the fallopian canal or the mastoid bone, resulting in bruising, crushing, or even shearing of the facial nerve. In these cases, the nerve must be surgically decompressed and, if necessary, sutured back together microscopically. Sometimes a nerve graft is needed, and this can be taken from elsewhere, such as a short segment taken from the greater auricular nerve that runs up the side of the sternocleidomastoid, or even a section of the peroneal nerve in the lower limb. Cancers can also cause facial nerve weakness, either of the temporal bone itself or of the parotid gland where the peripheral branches of the facial nerve run through. This facial nerve palsy is often permanent because treating the cancer surgically often includes removing the affected portion of the facial nerve as well. Sometimes the facial nerve can be spared, but often it has to be sacrificed. One of the most common causes of facial nerve palsy, however, is Bell's palsy, which is an idiopathic cause of facial weakness. Idiopathic means that the cause is unknown, so all other causes must first be ruled out, as Bell's palsy is a diagnosis of exclusion. The patient must therefore have a careful examination of their ear, mastoid bone and their parotid gland to make sure there's no disease in these organs first. It's thought that maybe Bell's palsy is caused by a virus and hence many ENT surgeons will treat Bell's palsy with an antiviral such as acyclovir together with a steroid such as prednisolone which is thought to ease any inflammation that the nerve may be experiencing and which may be causing its dysfunction. 90% of cases of Bell's palsy resolve fully, however, but it can recur in some people years later. One virus that is definitively known to cause facial palsy, however, is the herpes zoster virus that causes chickenpox in children. Of course, chickenpox itself is rarely a cause of facial weakness. However, the virus is thought to remain dormant in the cell bodies of nerves until they reactivate in times of stress, causing shingles. When the facial nerve is involved, the patient develops painful blisters around the ear and the ear canal and their face droops. This shingles of the facial nerve is known as a Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. The main difference between this and Bell's palsy is that people with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome experience quite a high level of pain whereas Bell's palsy is invariably painless. Treatment is again with acyclovir and steroids, but an antibiotic drop can also be used in the ear canal to soothe the blisters, especially if the drops contain steroids in them, and the antibiotic portion of the drops can help to prevent a secondary bacterial infection. 
One final element of the facial nerve worth discussing here is the stapedial reflex, which I briefly touched on earlier in this podcast. Again, the facial nerve gives rise to the stapedius nerve as it crosses the mastoid bone. The stapedius nerve innervates the stapedius muscle, and from the stapedius muscle rises the stapedius tendon which anchors the stapes bone to the bony wall of the middle ear cavity. Remember that the stapes is the innermost of the three ossicles which directs sound from the external world into the cochlea. When loud sound enters the ear, and by loud I mean anything greater than 70 decibels, this sound travels to the cochlea along the vestibulocochlear or eighth nerve to the cochlear nucleus which then sends impulses to the superior olivary complex and the superior olivary complex then sends impulses down the facial nerve to the stapedius nerve which then causes the stapedius muscle to contract. The contraction of the stapedius muscle causes the stapes bone to stiffen and by stiffening the stapes bone the rest of the ossicular chain is also stiffened. This stiffening effect essentially dampens the amount of loud sound entering the cochlea and is a protective mechanism. This protective mechanism is known as the stapedial reflex. Any injury to the facial nerve will therefore affect the stapedial reflex by inhibiting this stiffening of the stapes bone. This is why people who have Bell's palsy or Ramsey-Hunt syndrome often complain of hyperacusis, which is an inability to, to tolerate loud sounds. Incidentally, in otosclerosis, where the stapes bone is stiffened, the stapedial reflex is also inhibited, but not because of any problem with the facial nerve, but simply because Loud sounds can't get through the stiffened stapes bone to trigger the stapedial reflex. One last thing to note about the stapedial reflex is that it is a bilateral phenomenon. So loud sound entering one ear will cause the stapedial reflex in both ears due to crossover innovations in the upper echelons of the acoustic pathway. So there you have it. The facial nerve in a nutshell, a complex facial nerve of which the motor component is the most important. I would advise that you source a diagram of the facial nerve and study it having listened to this podcast or maybe even listen to it again while you're studying the diagram to help you get on top of the anatomical nuances of this potentially complex area. Again. I welcome any emails if you have any questions about this podcast. Thanks.